Welcome to this edition of On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow at Tarleton State University, and we're glad you're joining us today uh, for another show. We broadcast here on KTRL 90.5 FM every Sunday at noon and stream on tarletonradio.com. And the show is On Politics with Eric Morrow. And the focus of this show uh, is not about the partisan clamor that we see around us, unless we look at the political side of it and why it happens. Uh, It's not about really taking sides. It's about looking at information and data, uh, engaging with the issues that are out there that are significant, that are happening within politics and government and public policy and trying to get you more information so that you can examine these issues and you can engage with them uh, as as you're interested, as they impact you. You can be aware of what's happening and the things that leaders or elected leaders and others in public service are having to address uh, at the moment. And so we're glad you join us each week. Know that you can go back and look at previous shows or listen to them on SoundCloud. Uh, You can also download where you get your podcast. And of course, follow us on Facebook. That's On Politics with Eric Morrow for updates and interesting reads related to the issues we discuss on the show and other things as well uh, that we find engaging or interesting that are happening out there in the world of politics. One of the things that I wanted to do today with the show was to look back historically Uh, as many people are doing right now in this month of June uh, to 1921 and the race riots and the the massacre uh, that happens in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And one of the reasons I want to do this is because I've I've taught a course on the politics of civil rights. And of course, this is a, a focal point, especially in terms of our modern era and going back and looking at what actually happened. Because The Tulsa Race Massacre is one of those events that gets covered over uh, over time. It's just not looked at and examined for what it was uh, when when it happened. And it had happened, of course, the the actual event, which it continued through the month of June, uh, was between May 31st and and June 1, where more than uh, 35 city blocks in Tulsa, which uh, was the area where uh, blacks, where African-Americans uh, lived and their businesses, uh, where it was estimated that 191 businesses were destroyed and over 10,000 black residents were displaced from the Greenwood neighborhood in Tulsa. Uh, and so there, there's still, uh, for weeks, things were happening in Tulsa after that. And the significance of this event, and we'll get into some of the details as we go forward, uh, but uh, is that for so long it was ignored. It was, um, it was not examined. It was not looked at for what of the, 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 the challenges that it happened, the people who lost their lives, the people that lost their livelihoods and so forth. And so it's important that we see today, 100 years later, and especially really over the last 20 years, that this has been given much more attention in understanding what really happened, uh, what was the significance of it, uh, what it said about 
uh, race relations and the challenges of that in our country at that time, which is something that is very political. It is very engaging with people when we start to talk about issues of race. And as we've seen over the last several years, and you know, say even longer than that, but especially with the George Floyd incident, with all that has happened and the attention that's been given to the challenges we still have in our country uh, that um, that impact those relations and that, that come out in events like what happened to, to George Floyd and what has happened to others uh, that show that there are uh, significant challenges there. So I want to focus a little bit on this, uh, the, the Tulsa a massacre and talk a little bit about uh, the the issues of why did this take so long and why is this giving so much attention now within the political sphere uh, by leaders. Of course, Joe Biden uh, was there recently uh, offering his remarks, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about that and 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 what he connects to it politically because he's advocating for more voting, federal voting legislation and laws. Uh, that would prevent some of the things that are happening in states around the country in terms of uh, election security and and voter restrictions as it's being cast in the political deba- debate. We've discussed this on the show uh, for a couple of weeks and looking at these laws, especially the one in Texas uh, that was recently derailed by Democrats walking out uh, near the end of the session and, and most likely will come up again uh, in a special session. But going back to the Tulsa massacre, looking back over a century uh, to this event uh, of the Tulsa race riot of 1921, uh, we see that, that we, that there was progress being made in terms of of freedom, in terms of social movement, social mobility. Uh, You had a a part of Tulsa, Oklahoma, that was uh, where African-Americans were able to make significant progress uh, in terms of their, uh, their, their opportunity uh, in this country and in Tulsa and being able to, to uh, generate uh, income, to get educations, to uh, have their own businesses, to have, have a level of freedom, which at this time, you know, if we look back on that, we would say, well, there were still significant challenges there, very segregated. Uh, you could see where many people were, were were employed by white businesses and white parts of the community. Uh, there were elements there that, yes, were a part of, of life in this country in many places throughout uh, uh, the country itself. But there were also promising things as well. There were also things that were happening where people as human beings, no matter what their, their color of their skin, what, were able to, to, to progress to have opportunity, to have um, uh, freedom, to have economic freedom and opportunity and, and, and educational and so forth. And here it was flourishing, yet it was within a culture and an environment that all it took was a, a misdirected accusation uh, to, to set all of this off. Uh, to to change the course of many people's lives and of course the city and 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 of course to to then eventually lead to the suppression of any focus on on what happened uh, and where this came to light uh, in terms of more intense focus on it even though that there was it was known and the people who experienced it that lived on in the generations that followed uh, was because of the 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 mention of mass graves uh, that began to be explored 
uh, in the late 1990s, uh, where you had a state commission in Oklahoma uh, that started to look for these mass burial sites uh, in Tulsa. Uh, and the panel, which was called the Tulsa Race Riot Commission, uh, was created in 1997 by the Oklahoma State Legislature to investigate what happened in the city in 1921. Uh, and of course, estimates were that two to 300, maybe even more, uh, black citizens were killed with uh, the burning of thousands of residency, residences and uh, businesses, uh, destroying one of the most prosperous business districts uh, in the Southwest. And so it was interesting because in the mind of our country, many people in our country, when we look back at race uh, conflict and riots and, and things like this, of course, our memory is limited. Looking back, some think the racial disturbances of the 60s. Uh, but when we go back a century ago, uh, there was so much more in terms of violence. There was, was so much more in terms of, of retaliation or uh, violence directed at blacks that was just ignored, uh, that was just covered over. And I think this is one of the things that we're seeing that makes this so significant uh, is that we're, we're going back and looking at some of this that, that is, represents some of the worst in terms of our, our country, our behavior, our, our engagement with other people, our recognition of our common humanity, Many of these things that we've struggled with throughout the 20th century, but we're going back and looking at how really significant this was. Uh, we're, we're realizing and, and examining that within the context of our country and its freedom and its challenges and its struggles, that we've got to go back and look at these things to see the impact that they've made on succeeding generations of people. And we need to recognize them for what they, what they are and what they were. Uh, in those contexts and, and what happened to people and what destroyed their lives and their property and their and their livelihoods. And because this was also a time too, and, I, and I've covered this in the class that I've taught, looking at uh, the formation of the NAACP and their focus on uh, anti-lynching laws, which was again a challenge in the early part of the 20th century, uh, where you had lynching that happened on occasionally throughout the Southwest, uh, sorry, south, throughout the South and even into uh, other states in the, in the Midwest and in the North, you still had these kinds of challenges where people were taking the law into their own hands and they were retaliating many times in, on, on, on false pretenses, on not knowing the truth and not really seeking the truth. Uh, they wanted to take this out in a way and in a manner that either represented uh, their uh, animosity toward another race of people or knowing that, okay, they, they just assumed that because this person or these people were inferior as they, as they saw them, that they had to do these things or that they knew they could get away with it because the law would turn a blind eye. Thus, the push by the NAACP to get anti-lynching legislation move through Congress or to address it in the courts, uh, of course, it would take several decades more before some of these things would stick and the federal government then would assume some of the responsibility. Again, we don't see that until uh, the um, uh, Civil Rights Act and, and other legislation that will happen later, mid-20th century, that begins to put more uh, uh, teeth in this and begins to do more 
to protect the rights and the freedoms of of blacks uh, uh, throughout this country. And so the the Tulsa uh, race riots and the massacre that happened there is significant for a number of reasons for us to go back uh, and look at um, because it it on the one hand it counters the the views of many people about blacks and their uh, at that time and thinking that okay they were were an inferior class of people they are not able to uh, achieve and be successful they need to they have their place within society and so forth I mean this broke all of those those uh, uh, views and those uh, the 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 inadequate way in which people saw this and the the really wrong ideas they had about people who were human beings that had significant potential and now within this context and the way that the Greenwood um, uh, neighborhood and and all of that around it grew up was gave that environment for people to be successful and people to take care of themselves and to explore their freedom and to explore their potential uh, as human beings. And so this is quite significant that in going back to look at this, uh, to, to, to say that we can't cover over uh, these, these kinds of things. We have to push back against generations of people who followed, who didn't want to engage with what really happened, that didn't want to look at uh, 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 race disparity there and, and, and look at it in terms of violence of whites on blacks and, and be able to say, okay, who's actually in the wrong here? Who would take this into their own hands and be willing to do this kind of uh, damage and to do this kind of violence upon other human beings? And so one of the political aspects of this that I think are, are very significant and this is something to me that in looking at all of the debates that are going on, uh, on when we talk about race, when we talk about uh, uh, the, the issues that still persist, that flare up from time to time, is this the, the need for those who are our leaders, those who are our, our political leaders, to engage uh, with the past, but also to engage with the future in trying to help those that are in office and those that are community leaders to work for solutions uh, that, that bring people together with, with respect and, and uh, engagement, a level of engagement that is for the benefit of all involved within, within a community. And that's where I think it, it becomes a challenge because the tendency there, because of our political challenges today and the partisanship we see and where people are on, on different sides of different issues uh, is that you have some that are working for a, a national solution. How do we address this at the federal government? Uh, that then, as we did with civil rights, as we did with voting rights, so that then over time, some of these uh, inequities, some of these challenges, some of the concerns that people have about uh, uh, elements of racism that still persist both culturally, societally, institutionally, are, are addressed and, in, and engaged with so that we don't see incidents happen like what we've seen over the past few years. That, that's one approach, and that's a challenging approach, too, because many of these issues, like what we see in Tulsa, are, are issues within a geographic region, within a community. And it, it's not going to be resolved completely. It's certainly the role of the federal government there is there to uphold law uh, and to, to promote uh, working towards solutions that 
are not violent, uh, but that work within the law and that work within uh, the resources that can be put into uh, the uh, government and programming and things like that to bring people together uh, to discuss these issues. Uh, but at the federal level, it, it is so far removed and it, it is not a one size fits all. And I think this is where the challenge is on both sides. Again, when we talk about both sides of the aisle, Republicans and Democrats, uh, is, is how you approach it. Because on the one hand, as Biden will talk about in a moment, proposes new voting rights laws at the federal level, in, in terms of federal government engaging with these kinds of issues. You also have others who'd say, no, the federal government needs to stay completely away and, and not be engaged. Let, let these things be solved at the state level. Let these be, things be solved at the community level. Again, which I think is a, a very valid approach, but often what's missing in that equation are the resources, right? The resources that can come from state, the state uh, or a community in order to help move things forward in terms of dialogue, in terms of promoting integration, uh, uh, that, that affirm an environment of mutual respect, uh, that uh, attempts to head off any kind of responses that are going to lead toward violence, and that it's about communities, about dialogue, about uh, engagement with the critical issues that are happening that impact people's lives in a productive way. Uh, and that's where the, the federal government can come in. That's where it has in the past in terms of resources needed to address major social and, uh, challenges, uh, major economic challenges within a certain area. And that's where it can also be helpful if you have people within a community that are willing to commit to finding solutions, right, to know, knowing that some of these problems are not going to be easily resolved. Some of these tensions are not going to be easily uh, addressed, uh, but that that the progress toward doing that has to happen, and that community leaders, uh, religious leaders, uh, civic leaders, uh, leaders of, of organizations that provide help and assistance, business leaders, that people are willing to come together and try to work toward solutions to make a community a better place and, and to enhance the quality of life there. But I would also say, and that's the point of bringing this, uh, the Tulsa uh, race riot into uh, this discussion, is that we've got to be cognizant of the past. We've got to understand what has led us to this point and led us to engage with these, the need to engage with these issues in the way uh, that we do. We need to remember, we certainly need to remember the victims, the people who unjustly suffered uh, through events like this that happened not just in Tulsa, uh, but throughout the country, and have continued to happen at various times in various ways when we know that people who are not willing to commit to dialogue and who do not have mutual respect for the humanity of another person want to use violence uh, to try to advocate their position, their message, to achieve their goals, whatever they may be. Uh, we've got to work against that, and we've got to, to create the environments, work on building the environments, take what's already there and what's been accomplished by people in previous generations, and within our communities, create that kind of, of dialogue and, and acceptance and respect uh, and recognition of human dignity that, that helps us to address the critical problems and challenges that we have. 
So as we have uh, with this show and with the, this month in which there are these commemorations going on in Tulsa and in other parts of the country, uh, we need to look back at this incident. And I would encourage you to, to do more reading about it. Uh, for many people, it's something that they're not aware of. Uh, fortunately, we have much more coverage by the media, much more attention being given to it. That media attention really didn't start until uh, the late 1990s. Uh, after this uh, this commission uh, was established and they began to review uh, what happened in Tulsa, here we are 80 years removed uh, in, at the end of, of the 20th century uh, when uh, people began to move to give this more attention and to find out what, uh, what, what happened and what was the extent of, of the issues and the challenges uh, that happened in uh late May and early June of 1921. And then for another 20 years now uh, to to give this even more national attention. I, I think that's what we need to concern ourselves with as well, is that we we need that awareness. We, we don't need to repeat these kinds of events. We don't even need to come close to anything like this happening. Any violence perpetrated on someone of another race uh, we need to be aware of what has happened and how we have struggled as a country. We need to be aware of the impact that this has had on succeeding generations of people who experienced this, who lost their livelihoods, who lost family members, who were the, the, the victims of the, the violence perpetrated on them by people who were not willing uh, to show uh, respect, to allow the law uh, to, to review and to take things uh, forward as we are a people that say we are ruled by law. The, the rule of law is important in maintaining order in our society. Uh, and we need to understand that uh, we, and, and to, to work within that context uh, to advocate uh, for people coming together and offering sincere dialogue, sincere discussion, and, and, and then action, moving on that in order to promote uh, solutions or at least efforts to address some of the problems that, that we see today. This also moves into another area, and this is where I want to go before we talk about uh, President Biden and his response to, to, to the Tulsa riot recently in engaging the federal government along the lines of election law, uh, and that is these questions about what do we do now? What do we do now politically? What do we do now in terms of our uh, uh, the, the role of government, when we look back at these kinds of events and we see the tragedy of what happened and we engage with the significance of this upon people who followed, who experienced this and thus had you know, the negative impact of it economically in terms of their, uh, their family and, and so on. And I think this is probably going to be a discussion that's going to continue, and it's going to be a very heated discussion, right? Because you have some that advocate that there should be reparations, there should be uh, things that government does to respond in a way beyond just recognizing uh, that these were tragedies and that these things should not have happened and that, that the, the rule of law was ignored and people responded in ways that they shouldn't have. And, and so certainly the role of our, our officials, both you know, state, federal, and even community leaders, uh, is to recognize these events. That's very important. That's to put that out in front of people and to say, hey, we're looking back at this and we see what happened, and we don't want to have a society in which this is possible. Uh, 
We don't want to have uh, communities in which this kind of violence can be perpetrated on other people. We want to work toward uh, better quality of life and better environments within our cities and communities so that these kinds of things on whatever scale are, are not uh, the norm. Because we know in some places in our country where there are significant challenges uh, with violence and, and with uh, uh, ongoing problems with, with crime and how we address that uh, with policing and, and on both the state and the federal level. Uh, but the other part of this, too, that I think is going to become much more uh, challenging uh, is how do you respond to this at, at the state level? How do you respond to this at the local level? Because you can go to some communities where there are great programs in place and people dialoguing and conversing about uh, significant challenges. You can go to some places where that's kind of a, a veneer. It's it's happening, but it's not substantive and it's not affecting change. And you can go to other places where it's much more intense and it is engaging people and trying to create better quality of life and trying to um, engage with some of the, 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 the results of what have happened in the past that have led to economic and educational disparity and, and social challenges and so forth. Uh, and so that, I think, is going to be the much more challenging thing going forward. And, and of course, in my uh, work on this and review of this, it's, it's the, the aspect of creating or, or not creating, but encouraging more civic engagement by people in their communities. I mean, that that's where the focus has to be, because the solutions that come from above, from state and federal levels, they often can provide some structure and certainly the resources but it's not until people are willing at the local level, at the community level, at the neighborhood level to come together and to talk about these issues and engage with them and to work towards solutions with the organizations and institutions that are in their areas. Uh, it's not going to happen. It's not going to be long lasting. It's not going to, to reverse some of the things that we've talked about in terms of, of disparity that perpetuate uh, challenges and problems, wherever it may be, whatever races may be involved, people may be involved. And so when we look at it politically, I think one of the things that we need to be thinking about and we need to counter is this idea that that the solutions have to come from the state level or they have to come from the federal level, that they ha the solutions have to be by those who are elected to office. Uh, that's not a proper way to understand our democracy in this country. It's not a proper way to understand the responsibilities we have based on our freedom to be able to engage in these issues, to be able to be concerned about uh, society as a whole, our social contract here, that, that it's not just us. It's not so much about the individual and our right to this, our right to do that, our freedom to do this, but it's also our concern for the greater community and the lives of those around us, no matter what their background, no matter what their race, no matter what the color of their skin, uh, because they are human beings. And our, our constitution and our laws, as we've worked out over the time, not to say it's been ideal at, at, at any point, but is that that applies to every human being. That applies to, to people, to human persons. Uh, it does not distinguish uh, between uh, color of skin, race, social status, and so forth. 
that's what we have to keep in our minds, and that's what has to guide our, our engagement at our community level uh, in order to address the significant challenges that may be before us, the tensions that are there, the opportunities to work with people uh, to affect a better quality of life, uh, to uh, emphasize the, the importance of life itself and having an environment within a community that helps to sustain that and helps to meet the needs of those uh, who may be struggling and in some way uh, been affected by the disparity that that is that can be there. Uh, and so look back. I encourage you to look uh, into this and learn more about the Tulsa massacre and what happened uh, to understand and see these kinds of events that have had a significant impact on the lives of people, especially events that were covered over or not given the attention they needed, uh, because this, I think, is going to be more of what we see within our country and our society is coming to grips with these kinds of things in our history, but then also working and responding to them by saying, let's not let something happen like this again. Let's work within our communities to make them places of mutual respect uh, that support human dignity and human life, and that also uh, are thriving in terms of our understanding of democracy and how the principles of democracy and of our republic focusing on the rule of law uh, applies to all people uh, so that we can have better communities, that we can have uh, better conversations and dialogue and engagement uh, with every human being uh, within our society. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk about this event in terms of President Biden and what he has uh, discussed in terms of voting rights law uh, for the federal government to counter what's happening in some of the states. And then we'll also get a little closer to home in Texas, where we'll talk about the wrap-up of the legislative session. Will there be a special session this summer, uh, and what will be a part of that if it happens? We'll be right back. I'm Rissa. I'm Taylor. And we are the, the Music, Music Business, Business Babes. Babes. Music Business Babes is a music-based bi-weekly podcast where we answer tough industry-related questions, discuss updates in the industry, provide insight from our own personal experiences, and share fun stories along the way. You can catch the show by searching for Music Business Babes or Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow, and we are glad you're joining us today. Or if you're listening after broadcast through SoundCloud, we're glad that you're taking the opportunity to listen back at our shows. Another show this week uh, with uh, focusing on critical issues that are happening around us. Uh, of course, the first part of the show, if you missed that, was looking at the commemorations around the Tulsa uh, race riots and massacre that happened in 1921, the 100th anniversary, and what that means in terms of political implications going forward as we will most likely see some of these kinds of events uh, like uh, the Tulsa riot that was covered over for several generations become more visible to many Americans and looking back at how uh, we addressed uh, or didn't address some of these very challenging issues uh, that showed the worst of our society uh, in dealing with racial tensions and the, the issues of segregation and equality. 
So I wanted to turn now in a connected matter, as I mentioned in the first part of the show, to President Biden in his speech at the 100th anniversary of Tulsa's race massacre to call for legislation in Congress to protect the right to vote. Uh, And this is uh, going against some of the things that we've talked about the last few weeks that's happening in many states where they are considering laws uh, to, as, as Republicans say, focused on election security. We've seen this debate here in Texas. Democrats saying, no, this is about voter suppression. Of course, the laws in Texas were focused on what uh, county election officials had the freedom to do. What were the parameters uh, in which they could function in carrying out an election in terms of hours they could be open, uh, focused also on drive-through voting, and other elements that uh, uh, Republicans, at least in Texas, were saying these opened up the possibility for greater election fraud. Uh, The other side was saying, well, no, these are uh, flexibility that, that offers election officials the potential to get more voters, registered voters, to to vote, to be to have that opportunity uh, to have a, a variety of means in which to do it. And of course, I've advocated and said here that that we've got to be careful here because the the dialogue about this has become more political than it has pragmatic. Uh, because elections cost money; they cost money to run, and they cost money to ensure their integrity in terms of the use of technology, the training that goes into it, and so on. And that varies from rural to urban areas in terms of how elections are carried out, how, uh, how they can be effective, how they can be uh, uh, provide the opportunity for registered voters to vote, as well as the security aspect of it as well. And so one of the things that lawmakers should be discussing is how do you maintain the highest level of flexibility in means of voting while also being sensible about the fiscal cost the aspect of uh, ensuring election security and delivering that election. Uh, and that seems to what is lost, it gets lost in all of this debate uh, that has become very political. Well, President Biden added fuel to the fire uh, this past uh, week uh, when he proposed action on Capitol Hill uh, to, uh, pr- uh, to put forward a bill uh, that would, would kind of fight against this of what the states are doing on the federal level. Uh, and what has happened here is that Republicans, of course, most Republicans, if not all of them, have come out against this, looking at it and saying that the bill that's being proposed uh, by Biden uh, was undue federal overreach into state election systems. And of course, this is a debate that's been ongoing, especially since the middle part of the 20th century with the Voting Rights Act. Uh, But Biden here is pushing forward. Uh, He has pledged to get this uh, voting rights legislation passed, uh, but also has recognized that there may be Democrats that may have challenges with this as well. Um, And so we will see what happens with this. I mean, I think it's going to be a very visible fight in at the federal level that's connected to what's happening in state legislatures. We know what happened in Texas, that Democrats in the Texas legislature walked out last minute, so there was not a quorum to be able to move this forward, but it's very likely that it could be on the agenda for a special session. And one of the reasons the Democrats walked out was that there were amendments being added to it 
uh, that were a little over the top, a little even more restrictive than even many Republicans would have been willing to go along with. But what does that say about a special session? It means that some of those elements that were in there um, may be put back in. Uh, so let's talk about that for just a moment. Uh, because there's been a number of articles and, and editorials uh, about this, that um, that this is going to become even a more heated battle in Texas, but that it also could be the fact that uh, Republicans may have their way if we have a, a special session. Uh, part of the reason why the Democrats walked out, as I said, was when the final version was presented to lawmakers, it had items in it that the House or Senate uh, had not considered. Uh, one lowered the bar for a judge to order a new election because of alleged fraud. So that puts it in the hands of the judiciary. Another seemed particularly partisan uh, in that it would restrict early voting on Sundays to a window of 1 to 9 p.m., and which would cut back uh, on uh, polling access. One, one had said, and of course this is where it becomes very political, that this can only be looked at as an effort to curtail the souls to the polls events in which organizations take black churches to vote early after morning services. Uh, GOP legislators now say it was a mistake in the bill's drafting, even though some had defended it uh, without uh, catching an alleged a typo um, that was in the legislation. So what does, what does this look like? Well, we most likely will see a special session in the Texas legislature, depending on what the governor decides to do. Uh, in engaging this. And, and there's already odds within the GOP leadership uh, over this and what should be covered because some of the legislation, as we saw in this uh, uh, session, uh, has been a, a, a challenge to the role that Governor Abbott has had in using his executive authority in the, um, uh, in the pandemic. And thus we see some uh, disparity there, I mean, not disparity, but disagreement between top rep Republican leaders uh, over uh, what should be the focus going forward uh, in terms of a special session. Uh, so it remains to be seen, you know, what, what's going to happen, because uh, Abbott has threatened some vetoes. Uh, you've had debates, uh, you know, the tensions there between Governor Abbott, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, House Speaker Dade Phelan, uh, on how to approach this elections bill if it comes back up, uh, and what other le legislation should be on the special session agenda. Um, and, and so this is going to be played out over the next few weeks, and it's something that we'll be covering, especially since special sessions are somewhat unique in our modern era, though they happen. Sometimes they're very short because there are loose ends that are not wrapped up in the regular session. It's been a long time since we've had a a lengthy ongoing, or at least a few sessions. Uh, there were some years in the past where we had multiple uh, special sessions. Um, but again, uh, it's going to be political tensions, political debates here about what's actually supposed to be on the agenda. Texas law, the Constitution stipulates that it's the governor that decides that. Uh, and he could very well hold some things hostage in a way of saying, well, this is the issue I want you to look at first, and then we'll get to this if the decision is favorable on the issue that he wants. And of course, this election law, uh, this review of election laws and this proposed legislation on elections uh, could be at the front uh, of the list. Um, and that's what Abbott has made clear. He wants the legislature to finish the job 
on Senate Bill 7, particularly because it is a popular issue out there with those that may have been dis, uh, dissatisfied with the outcome of the election of 2020 and looking at uh, the potential of, well, how, how did this happen? It was in the pandemic. Uh, there were different approaches that were taken to carrying out the election. Uh, did this contribute to, to that result? Abbott also uh, may call a special session that would deal with some of the, the bills that the l- lieutenant governor, uh, Dan Patrick, uh, was advocating, uh, such as banning transgender students from playing on sports teams based on their gender identity, prevent, preventing local governments from using taxpayer funds for lobbyists, and punish social media companies for censoring Texans based on their political viewpoints. These were three signature issues of the lieutenant governor uh, that he wanted to see done before the legislature adjourned, but it did not happen. Um, Patrick has also asked Abbott to include in any special session a proposal to outlaw gender-affirming health care for minors, uh, which had also died in the House, so something that they wanted to be uh, carried forward. And again, it's, 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 he's also called for using a special session uh, to continue to push hard for direct ratepayer relief for residential power customers after the February winter weather crisis. So we'll, we'll see if any of these issues are brought to the forefront as a part of a special session and what the politics are that play out between the governor, lieutenant governor, uh, and the House Speaker uh, in bringing legislators back to Austin Uh, to come into session and to engage with some of the issues that were left on the table, uh, which again, we know will not be picked up uh, until the next legislative session in two years, starts in January of 2023, unless there is a special session. The other side of this too is that we already know there will be a special session this fall uh, once the results of the 2020 census are available to states and they began the redistricting process that the legislature will have to come back into session uh, to look at maps and to decide on the uh, redistricting and the maps that will apply uh, to state House and Senate districts, as well as to U.S. House of Representative districts uh, in the state of Texas. And we know that can be a very political and controversial process as well. As we look uh, to the, the, the last part of the show here, uh, there are some things that I wanted to bring to your attention in looking back at the legislative session and some of the things that, that uh, have, were successful. And then, of course, we've already talked about some of the things that either were uh, failed because they did not get through the process in time that are on the agenda for a special session or potentially like voting uh, restrictions, election security, uh, transgender students in school sports, um, revoking physicians' medical licenses for providing gender-affirming medical care, taxpayer-funded lobbying, and so on. So uh, the governor's pandemic powers, this was one that was on the session and the agenda for the legislature early on uh, that did not make it through uh, either. But there are some, one that's been signed into law was Senate Bill 8, the fetal heartbeat bill, which was the abortion law that we talked about uh, last week, uh, sent to him uh, for signature. Uh, and that's uh, these are things that we it looks like we'll go through, are the permitless carry of handguns, uh, that's open carry, the state budget, uh, which that process was completed uh, by the legislature, 
uh, the winter storm response uh, of the state, uh, the House Bill 3979 uh, addressing the teaching or the uh, prohibition on teaching critical race theory in public schools, uh, and then other things that, that got through that are certainly signature items that uh, are along the lines of things that uh, connect with voters leading into the next election cycle, uh, the National Anthem Bill, the Broadband Expansion Bill, uh, ban the abortion uh, if Roe v. Wade is overturned, and then protecting churches from closure uh, during uh, disasters. Uh, so there's a lot here that has happened in the state legislature. Um, uh, some of this uh, is major in terms of its impact. Uh, Senate Bill 3 uh, that was uh, sent to Abbott on May 30th, which addresses the sweeping legislation because of the winter storm, which would create a statewide emergency system to alert Texans if power outages are expected and require power generation companies to better prepare their facilities to withstand extreme weather. Uh, so a major one coming out of the events of this uh, last, um, uh, uh, the winter storm that we had back in February. Uh, Senate Bill 1, of course, related to the state budget, uh, the one that must pass uh, so that the government can be funded and government programs and institutions. It's the state budget for the 2022-23 biennium. Uh, lawmakers in it, entered the session expecting to make major cuts, but financial forecasts improved. And so we do have a budget uh, that does not have cuts. Uh, so it, in fact, the challenge has been where to spend additional revenue, where to use federal funding that's being provided as a part of the pandemic uh, relief. Uh, another one that I had mentioned, the National Anthem Bill. This conservative-backed bill would require any professional sports teams with contracts with state government to play the national anthem before the start of a game. Of course, we know some of the background and history on the challenges there. Broadband expansion, one that might impact some of our listeners. This measure would aim to incentivize the expansion of broadband internet access to areas across the state through the creation of the State Broadband Development Office, which would award grants, low interest loans, and other incentives to build out broadband access. Uh, so something that, that may be of benefit uh, to those in rural areas uh, that do not have fully that kind of access. And of course, one that was on the religious freedom front, House Bill 1239 sent to Abbott on May 28th, uh, protecting churches from closure during disasters. This measure would ban public officials from closing churches or other places of worship during a disaster declaration. Uh, and that one will say for a future show when we look at legislation both on the federal and state levels that has come out addressing uh, religious freedom or uh, uh, establishment clause issues in the First Amendment. I like to do a show occasionally on that where we try to look at what's happening and developing uh, in that area of law. Uh, as we wrap up the show today, uh, I'm looking forward to getting back to having some interviews. Uh, one of the things that we're trying to look at uh, I do have some people lined up that will give us more behind the scenes of what goes on in the state legislature as we wrap up the session, as they as they wrap it up. They've already done that, but it's good to kind of look back and see some of the political dynamics that are going on there. Uh, also, the other thing that I wanted to look at 
was the ongoing uh, fervor around what happened on January 6th in the nation's capital. Uh, as we know, recently, the Senate Republicans blocked a plan for an independent commission uh, to look at the events of January 6th, uh, which I'm, I'm not so sure is not a, a good idea in terms of how long this is perpetuated and how much uh, challenges this creates in putting fuel on an already very charged uh, political environment. Uh, not to say that there were certainly atrocities. You know, on that day, there were acts of violence uh, that are not uh, acceptable within our country and with our democracy and our focus on the rule of law. We pride ourselves in providing the mechanisms through which in government, through the branches of government, in order to challenge uh, what government does uh, and to do it through that process uh, that does not incite violence, that should not. And I'm not sure that this is helping Democrats at this point to push this uh, in bringing to the forefront and trying to, and what their focus is, is on Donald Trump and his role uh, in this. That has already been adjudicated uh, through an impeachment process uh, that did not end in his removal from office. In fact, uh, he left office because of the 2020 election. And so I think the focus here should be on how do we go forward and not uh, and try to do the things that are necessary uh, to, to bring people in in an inclusive way in terms of political engagement and affirm the importance of that engagement and not being violent, but being constructive and being focused on how we can dialogue and discuss. Again, going back to some of the things that I talked about at the beginning of the show in the first segment of how do we navigate all of this? How do we navigate these political challenges in a way that promotes stability? Uh, it promotes uh, uh, the rule of law. It promotes, uh, again, not certainly being willing to engage with the serious problems and challenges of, the, of our government and the way we govern ourselves, but doing it in a constructive way, not in a way that's about destroying property, uh, injuring lives, taking lives, uh, threatening uh, through violence in a way that, that, that could create a level of, of instability uh, that we certainly do not want to see in this country for, for our benefit, the benefit of our children and future uh, generations. Uh, so, uh, that will be upcoming. I want to have an interview on that and we'll be bringing someone on the show uh, to be able to discuss that. But for now, I want to thank you for joining us on Politics and we look forward to having you with us each week, Sunday at noon, right here on KTRL 90.5 FM. with production from me, Taylor Welch, and me, Carissa Cole. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.